The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 12 says, To the chief musician on an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things, who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth. Purified seven times, you shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. All right, our sermon text today is Leviticus 23, verses 26 through 32. All right, this is called the Feast of the Lord, the Day of Atonement. All right, so starting in verse 26, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that same day, for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening. From evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. In 1967, Thomas A. Harris wrote a self-help book, which became a bestseller. Other than Jim Dwyer, who already knows the answer to this, does anybody remember the name of it? No. I'm okay. You're okay. Thank you. It sold over 15 million copies. The main theme and idea of the book is, I feel good about myself and feel you're pretty okay as well. The LA Times said in their evaluation of it, extraordinary. Harris has helped millions find the freedom to change, liberate their adult effectiveness, and achieve joyful intimacy with others. Self-help books like this may make us feel good in a shallow way, just as a Joel Osteen sermon may do, but they certainly don't do anything in helping us achieve joyful intimacy with God. In fact, they will inevitably leave us in a worse condition than when we began because the ever-nagging idea, which is in all of us, is that there is a God and we can never know if we are okay with him or not. This is true with every religion on the planet as well. In the end, all of them but one attempt to resolve this problem in an upward way. We do things in order to appease God. In theological terminology, it is called works 
works-based salvation. Works-based salvation is the defining element of every single religious expression known to man on this planet, with but one exception, and I mean only one, biblical Christianity. It defines many sects within the greater umbrella of Christianity as well. But these cannot be considered biblical Christianity, meaning that which is based on what God has stated in his word. Although offensive to many to list these various subsects, it is actually inappropriate to not do so. Unless someone knows they are not acting in accord with God's rules, they will never know how to act and respond accordingly. A classic example of works-based salvation is Roman Catholicism, and I state this knowing that about half of the congregation here today came out of Roman Catholicism. Their faith is defined by their own canons, and these canons of Roman Catholic law state explicitly that which is contrary to the Bible. An example of this is found in seven of the canons from their Council of Trent, which was a council that they had as a knee-jerk reaction to the Protestant Reformation. It was held in 1546. Some of those canons are a bit wordy, so I will read just one, and it will suffice to demonstrate this. Canon 12. Here's what Canon 12 of the Council of Trent says, and it is still Roman Catholic law to this day. If anyone saith that justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in the divine mercy which remits sins for Christ's sake, or that this confidence alone is that whereby we are justified, let him be anathema. What they have declared as anathema is the very heart of the gospel message. If you're not sure if I'm telling the truth, take a moment to read Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, or Galatians 2, verse 16, or a host of other verses which clearly teach this. Canon 12, along with several other canons from Trent, actually declares the Apostle Paul anathema, or consigned to damnation. One of the canons would do the same to Jesus Christ himself. But, as Jesus is the ultimate author of Scripture, all of the same canons implicitly damn him as well. Not a good place to be in when one must stand before the one they have damned with their words, but who will do the actual damning of their eternal souls. Our text verse today comes from Colossians chapter 2, it's verses 16 and 17. So let no one judge you in food or drink, those are dietary laws of the Old Testament, or regarding a festival, meaning the feasts of the Lord, or a new moon, meaning the new moon feasts of Israel, or Sabbaths, meaning the weekly Sabbaths of Israel. Let no one judge you in those things which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. My brother Ethan once drove by a billboard that had a picture of Christ on the cross on it. Along with that was the question, if I'm okay and you're okay, then what am I doing up here? Think it through. If we could work our way back to God, and I mean if even one person on this planet and in all of the ages of human history could work his way back to God, then what would be the point of sending Jesus? If one person could do it, then it would entirely negate the purpose of the cross. The God-man would have wasted his time, spent his effort vainly, shed his blood without need, and given up his breath in futility. But God is wiser than that. 
He saw the need. He understood man's inability to meet the need. And he sent his only begotten and beloved son to take care of that problem. The pain of the cross is the only way that God can say to us, I'm okay, you're okay. It is this and no other way. God did the work, man must do the believing, so the Bible does say. Why is that so hard for people to understand? Let us put aside our prideful deeds and trust in the finished and all-sufficient atoning work of the Lord Jesus. It is a moment in history which is prefigured by a particular feast of the Lord, the record of which is found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first and only thought today is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Verse 26, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The words indicate that an entirely new feast is introduced. In other words, this is not a continuation of the Feast of Acclamation, which we saw last week, which was detailed in the previous three verses. Instead, it is a standalone feast, which was to be heralded in as such. Verse 27, also. The verse begins with the Hebrew word ach, translated here as also. It is often used as a restrictive or a limiting word translated as only. Only this feast and the next to be described feast of Sukkot begins with the word ach. It thus signifies that this is a peculiar feast. As it is a limiting word, one must contemplate what part of the verse that we're about to read is being set apart. Is it only on the 10th day of the month? Is it only it shall be a holy convocation? Is it only you shall afflict your souls? Or is it only there shall be an offering by fire to the Lord? As a specific day is set apart for other feasts, it is surely not referring to the set day. On other feasts, there are holy convocations. And on other feasts, there are offerings of fire to the Lord. Therefore, it appears that the stress is laid upon the words, you shall afflict your souls. This alone is unique to the feast days recorded here. And in fact, the term is used three times in these six verses. There is a stress upon it that is not to be overlooked or ignored. In fact, the word ana or afflict is used only five times in the book of Leviticus and all five are in either chapter 16 or in these six verses, all dealing with the day of atonement. The word carries several meanings, but it gives the sense of looking down or browbeating. Thus, it here signifies to be humble or to abase oneself. There was to be no self-exaltation on this day, but rather the people were to avow their lowly state before the Lord. Verse 27 continues, the tenth day of this seventh month. The specific day is selected. It was to commence that evening of the month of Ethanim, which is later known as Tishri, and continue until the evening of the 10th day. This is not because it has a future fulfillment in Christ, but because of what it signifies in Christ. As we have already gone through the Day of Atonement guidelines, which were given in chapter 16, we know that this day was fulfilled in Christ's crucifixion. Absolutely no doubt about it. That did not occur on the 10th day of the seventh month. Rather, it occurred on the 14th day of the first month, meaning the day of Passover. However, 
Atonement logically follows redemption. A person is redeemed and then the sins are atoned for, even if these things happen simultaneously in God's mind. The Day of Atonement is logically prior also to the Feast of Sukkot, which commences on the 15th day of the same month, coming soon to a sermon near you. Sukkot, as we will see, pictures Christ dwelling in a tabernacle of flesh and his people dwelling with him. This could not be realized in its fullest until after our sins were atoned for. Thus, this feast precedes that of Sukkot. This is an important point to remember because, as we have noted before, it is a very common claim that the three fall feasts are not yet fulfilled in Christ, and they will only be fulfilled in his second advent. This is false, and this is heresy. To state that Christ has not fulfilled these feasts is to state that Christ did not fulfill the law. Thus, the law is still binding on us. But Christ is, as Paul says in the book of Romans, the end of the law for all who believe. There is no future fulfillment of these feasts, even if there are continuing applications of them. Christ died once for all sinners, but each sinner's day of atonement comes on whatever day they come to Christ. It is gigantic error to say that these feasts are yet to be fulfilled. Verse 27 continues, shall be the day of atonement. The Hebrew here is only three words, Yom HaKippurim Hu, day atonements it. Yom means day, HaKippurim means the expiations or the atonements. It is a plural word. This word is identical with kofar, which has several interconnected meanings, all of which signify a covering. It can be a bribe, where a bribe covers the eyes of the one who is bribed. It can be pitch, as in bitumen, as in covering the ark of Noah. It can be henna, as in dying, as you see people dye their hands when they get married. Or it can be a ransom or a satisfaction. Each of these is connected to the word kafar, which comes from kofar. Kafar indicates to appease or to atone. Considering all of this, we can see that this is a day in which sins are covered over, carried away, and a ransom is made in order to satisfy or appease the wrath of God. If one looks at Christ's work in this light, he can see that before the covering, God saw the flaw. Once the covering is made, God only sees that which makes the covering. This is why Paul uses the term in Christ. When God looks at us, he does not see us in the state that we are, fallen and wayward. Rather, he sees Christ's covering of us and nothing more. We have been ransomed. We are covered. We are deemed as flawless, all because of another, all because of Christ. In order for this to happen, though, Christ first had to cover us. It is in his cross that this atonement occurred. It is the most solemn day in all of human history. Therefore, in anticipation of that day, each year, Israel would observe the Day of Atonement. They were informed that on this most holy and particular day, verse 27 continues, it shall be a holy convocation for you. Mikra kudesh yiyeh. Convocation holy it shall be. This repeats verse 2 of this chapter, which said, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. The Lord designated certain days to be holy convocations, and this particular day was to be one of them. 
However, unlike all of the others, this one has a very special and important guideline. Verse 27 continues, you shall afflict your souls. Ve'initem et nafshot hechem, and you shall afflict your souls. These words are repeated exactly four times in Leviticus and Numbers, and all of them refer to the Day of Atonement. The mandate was first given in verse 1629. It generally is accepted that afflict your souls means to fast. The people were to deny themselves food. However, it certainly also included refraining from any other pleasures and also an active affliction of remembering the sins of the past year and mourning over them. In Acts 27 verse 9, this day, the Day of Atonement, is known as Teen Nisteon, or the fast, thus signifying the manner in which this day was conducted. But the word has a greater meaning in Christ, where the word anah, or afflict, is used twice concerning this exact scene. Isaiah prophesied about the coming of the Lord and his work for us. Well, guess what? He wrote that this would be the case with Christ. It says there in Isaiah 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and anah, afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him... On him, on our Lord Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was anah. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as his sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. As Christ was so afflicted, the people were to anticipate that august life and atoning sacrifice with the afflicting of their own souls. They were not to do any work of any kind as well, acknowledging that they were in a state of affliction. Nothing regular was to be done, but rather this was to be a high Sabbath. Verse 27 continues, and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And offer an offering by fire to Yehovah. The offerings mentioned here are more than just those given in Leviticus 16. Others were required in addition to the regular daily offerings. Numbers 29 gives the specific offerings which were to be presented to the Lord. We had the daily offerings. We've got the offerings of Leviticus 16. And in Numbers 29, we have these. You shall present a burnt offering to the Lord as a sweet aroma. One bull, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year. Be sure they are without blemish. Their grain offering shall be of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for the one ram, and one-tenth for each of the seven lambs. Also, one kid of the goats is a sin offering. Besides the sin offering for atonement, the regular burnt offering with its grain offering, and their drink offerings. These, then, are the total offerings which were presented to the Lord. In type and picture, Every detail points to the person and work of Christ. Verse 28, And you shall do no work on that same day. And all work, no, you shall do the bone, the day, that. 
It sounds rather odd when literally translated, but the word etsem or bone means the same. This goes back to Genesis 2, verse 23, where Adam declared that Eve was bone of my bones. In other words, they were of the same substance. That then carries on in the Hebrew language to reflect that which is the same. And so on this same day, which has just been described, no work was to be done. This is more than a regular work day. It means all work, no work at all. Though not a Saturday Sabbath, it was to be a high Sabbath of resting unto the Lord. Verse 28 continues, for it is the day of atonement. Ki yom kippurim hu, for day atonements it. Again, the word kippurim is plural. It signifies expiations or carrying aways. On this day, all sins and all transgressions for the repentant souls were atoned for. Verse 28 continues to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. Le kafer alechem lifne Yehovah Elohechem. To cover you before the face Yehovah your God. The words are not uncommon, but they should be explained. When the Lord's face is turned toward someone, it can be a bad thing. Or it can be a good thing. In Leviticus 20, verse 6, it says this, And the person who turns to mediums and familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I will set my face against that person and cut him off from his people. That is bad news. However, the Lord's face can signify blessing as well. This is seen, for example, in the Aaronic blessing found in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That is good news. The difference in the two is how the person is viewed by the Lord. In the case of a sinner, one cannot stand before the face of the Lord and find blessing. But when one's sins are atoned or covered over, then what he sees is the covering, not the one covered. This is the purpose of atonement. It is to bring warring parties back together again. And hence, it is an act and right of at-one-ment in a very real sense. It should be obvious that the term make atonement for you is referring only to the people of Israel. They were the chosen nation and they alone were covered by the Lord's annual provision, which occurred on this sacred day. However, this is the type and then there is the anti-type. The atoning sacrifice of Christ, the fulfillment of what is seen here is sufficient for all people and at all times who will come to him by faith. John clearly and specifically states this in his first epistle with these words. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the whole world. The Greek word translated there as propitiation means atoning sacrifice. It is Christ who is the atoning sacrifice for the whole world, for any who will simply come. The word propitiation in English literally means to appease. Thus, one can see how God's wrath is appeased in Christ covering of us, thus allowing us to be acceptable as we stand in the presence of the Lord. Verse 29, for any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. The Hebrew begins the verse with kikal hanafesh asher lo te'une, or for all the soul which no be afflicted. 
The soul stands for the person, but it is the soul which shall be cut off from the people. The phrase is used six times in Leviticus to indicate excision from the people of Israel. And it is important that consistency of these words be maintained. What is important here is what it pictures. In the antitype Christ, there is the truth that any who will not come to him will be cut off from the presence of God. It is the soul which is eternal, and that soul will be lost unless the afflictions of Christ are imputed to him. If not, then only the option of eternal separation from the presence of God is left. That's it. It's either in Christ or separated forever from God. All of this effort in presenting to the world these ancient types and pictures and all of the centuries of Israel's history has been compiled to show us the immense importance of not missing what God would do in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When we hurriedly read through these often difficult passages, we miss the importance of what God is attempting to relay to us. But every word is calling out for us to consider and to act. This then makes it so immensely sad when people reject Christ's work as if it is somehow insufficient to save, and they fall back on observing these mere shadows. What a dishonor to God to do so. What a rejection of the horrors of the cross. And so... What a horrifying place to find oneself in. Verse 30, And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. Again, instead of person, the word soul is used twice in this verse, and it is for the same reason as before. The soul is eternal. The doctrine of anthropological hylomorphism teaches that a person is a soul-body unity. The soul can be, and it is separated from the body when the body dies. However, the soul lives on in an unnatural state. But though unnatural, it does live on. A soul which is destroyed then means lost. One can get a future taste of what Revelation speaks of with the words limnin ton poras, or the lake of fire. Everything that Israel faced in a physical manner is realized in a spiritual reality for the greater world. Scary stuff for those who should care, but as of yet still don't, or for those who do care but have been misled about the way to avoid that terrible fate. The prohibition here is for any and all kinds of work. This day alone was set aside as a special Sabbath-type day. Not even meals could be made, which was something allowed on the other holy convocations. This was to be a unique and an awesome day for the people to remember and to keep This is made explicit with verse 31, you shall do no manner of work. All work, no, you shall do. The repetition is a Hebraic way of stressing the point. We might stress this by saying you are absolutely not to do any work on that day. But in the Hebrew manner, repeating the same thing is such a stress. Two points about this. First, by default, the priests were exempt from this absolute prohibition, because it is they who had to do the work for the people in conducting the rituals for atonement. Everybody got that? Secondly, as the priests are representative of the Lord, then the work they do is all sufficient for the accomplishment of the needed atonement. Does everybody have that? Good. That is a very important point to remember. In other words, right here in this prohibition is seen the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith and all sufficient salvation. 
The priest's work is, in type, that of Christ Jesus, our true high priest. That was extra super califragilistic expialidociously seen in our evaluation of Leviticus chapter 16. Every detail of what the priest did was, as you remember, point by point by point fulfilled in the life and work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, as the admonition to do no work of any kind at all in any way and without exception is given to the people of Israel, then it is a clear, precise, and absolute picture of our not doing any work of any kind at all in any way and without exception in order to be saved. There is no I in this equation. It is completely and absolutely the work of the high priest and his work alone, which brings about our atonement and the propitious, blessed relationship that we experience with God. Will somebody please give me an amen? Amen. Thank you. Verse 31 continues, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. Chukat olam le'dorotechem becho moshevotechem. Statute forever to your generations in all your dwellings. The phrase chukat olam or statute forever has been explained quite a few times, but it must be explained again just in case its meaning is leaked out of your ear. The word olam gives the sense of to the vanishing point. Throughout your generations means that it was to be continuous and without interruption. All your dwellings means that it applies to all of Israel without any exception. As a feast of the Lord, it was an annual anticipatory look to the time when Christ Jesus would come and he would fulfill it. At that time, the shadow would become substance. With the introduction of the new covenant, this has come to its vanishing point. It is fulfilled and it is annulled in Jesus Christ. However... What it pictures continues on in Christ. No person may work in order to receive the blessing of entering the presence of God. Nobody. All people must rest in the finished work of Christ alone, and none can receive his mediation as our high priest without receiving his all-sufficient atoning sacrifice by faith alone. The pattern is set. The word is written. The decision is final. All Christ only Christ, and in Christ alone. Now you know why I quoted the Roman Catholic doctrine of Canon 12, along with the other seven, which I did not quote you. is because they do not believe that it is all Christ, only Christ, and in Christ alone. And they are following a very sad path down that, and they're taking a billion people with them, unless those people understand the grace of God in Christ. And by the way, you can toss out the teaching of the Judaizers and the Hebrew Roots movement as well, right out on their ear. They are heresy. We do not reinsert the law of Moses at all. It doesn't matter what precept you go back to the law on, forget it. You can toss it out. Verse 32, it shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. Shabbat Shabbaton Hu Lachem. Sabbath complete rest it to you. The exact same phrase with one minor difference is given in Leviticus 16 verse 31 as well. Here it says Shabbat Shabbaton Hu Lachem. There it says Shabbat Shabbaton He Lachem. Why is it a he and not a who? What with this are we to do? If you're not sure, 
then why am I asking you? <laughs> not understanding the nuances of this at all, and as not one scholar that I know of commented on this difference. Not one, not one Jewish scholar, not one Christian scholar. I did what I always do, and I picked up the iPad, and I called Sergio in Israel. Fortunately, he was at that time having a pastor's conference at his house, and with a little bit of back and forth, the explanation finally rose up to meet my ears. The word he or who in either form means it. However, he in 1631 is tied to the feminine word Sabbath. Here in Leviticus 23, verse 32, it is tied to the masculine word Shabbaton, or complete rest. Why did the Lord change he to who? Again, if you don't know, why am I asking you? The reason is because in Leviticus 16, verse 31, the focus is on the Sabbath. Here it is on the rest. Christ is our Sabbath rest. That is made explicit in Hebrews 4, verse 3. For we who have believed do enter that rest. That was explained in detail in our Sabbath sermons, including the one from Leviticus 23, verse 3, which we went through a few weeks ago. However, the change from he to who here is obvious from the context. What has been the constant admonition during these instructions? No Work. God has given us an amazing insight into Christ and his work. First, he is our Sabbath rest. We rest in him positionally. But Christ is also the end of the law for all who believe. He has done the work. We find our rest in him, actually. The focus goes from Christ, our place of rest, to Christ, because of whom we rest. Verse 32 continues, and you shall afflict your souls. This is the third and final time that anah, or afflict, is mentioned in this passage. The repetition is given to demonstrate to the people that simply fasting is not enough to meet the demands of this holy day. Not only were they to not work, but they were to actively afflict their souls. Doing one but not doing the other was insufficient. Not working anticipated our not working for salvation. Afflicting their souls anticipated our acceptance of Christ's afflictions for our atonement. Verse 32 continues, On the ninth day of the month at evening. The words here explain the words of verse 27. The tenth day of the month means the ninth day of the month at evening. If this went unstated, then one might assume that it was meant to be commenced at the evening of the tenth day. Such is not the case. Instead, a day goes, verse 32 continues, from evening to evening. Me erev ad erev, from evening to evening. The day starts in the evening of the ninth and goes through until the evening of the tenth. The pattern was established at the creation. A day is from evening to evening, according to the Hebrew reckoning of a day. This is why even from the first day of creation and even before the sun, the moon, and the stars were set in place to show us an evening or a morning, that record says, so the evening and the morning were the first day. The pattern was set in God's mind before creation so that we would know that in the creation, a literal day is meant for each day of the creation. The logic is not to be missed here, and yet it often is. It is this unchanging 24-hour period that the day is reckoned. 
And so it is with the evening of the ninth day of the seventh month at evening. Verse 32 finishes with, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. Tishbetu Shabbatichem, resting in your day of rest. These words explain exactly what was referred to earlier with the change of he to who when speaking of the Sabbath of complete rest. Christ is our Sabbath rest and we are to rest, meaning not work, in him. Instead, we are to live by faith in what he has done and not attempt to merit God's favor through deeds of the law or following the Roman Catholic doctrine of deeds, deeds, deeds in addition to Christ's sacrifice. For the previous 11 months and 29 days, the Israelites had worked under the law to obtain God's favor and none of them succeeded. For them, only wrath and indignation could result from their inability to keep the law. But God gave them grace. On this momentous and august day, which came each year, they were to do nothing but rest and afflict their souls. And this was totally up to them. They would be scattered throughout all of the land of Israel. And for many, nobody but they alone would know if they had actually refrained from work and food and if they had actually actively afflicted their souls. In other words, this day of days was a day of, anybody? Faith. It would be between their hearts and God. Would they come by faith in their minds to Jerusalem and accept the atoning sacrifice which was being made for them? Or would they continue on in their own futile attempts at pleasing God and or just living life without regard to him, ignoring his word and find only deserved condemnation lay ahead? The choice was theirs. And the same choice is ours today. For you, what will it be? Will you rest in the complete rest which is found in Christ? Please come to the cross of Christ and put away the vain struggle which separates you from him. The day of atonement was only a picture of what was to come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Concerning the day of atonement in Christ, we proclaim feast fulfilled. There is no future fulfillment of this feast in the nation of Israel. If you have been taught that, you have been misled. Christ is the end of the law, including this portion of it. Atonement has been secured, and each may now access that gift of God. But you must act. There is no blanket covering. God expects you to reach out by faith and receive the work of his son. And then he expects you to rest in that completed work once and for all. Come to the cross, give up the law which died there, and be reconciled once and forever to our heavenly father. Why do I say the law died there? I'm going to read you right out of uh, my Bible over here today. Silly me. I'm going to read you right out of the Bible itself. Why I just said that the law died there on the cross. I read this to you before each sermon every week. I forgot to this week, so I'll read it at the end of it. Having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements which was against us, meaning the law of Moses, wiped it out that was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. It is Christ's body which was nailed to the cross. Christ's body is that which in his body he fulfilled the law of Moses. The symbolism there is that the law of Moses was nailed there. And when he died, the law died with him. We do not participate in the law of Moses in any way, shape, or form, lest we call God incompetent. He's fully competent to save us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so that is what I would ask you today to do. 
is to please contemplate your state before God and say, I know that I cannot upwardly work my way to God. There's no upward movement to him. He's infinite. We'll be climbing forever and ever, and we will never reach it. But he reached down to us through the giving of his son. And so there is no work involved. It is all done by Christ. The only thing we have to do, which is not a work, according to Romans, I think it's 3 verse 17, is to believe. Faith is excluded as a work, according to Paul. It's not a work, so don't let anybody tell you that God gives you the faith. You have it. It's in you. You just have to exercise it. And if you don't have it, then you can ask God, and he will give it to you, because you're asking in faith. One way or another, it all comes down to the doctrine of faith, grace by faith. That is it. And the atonement of Jesus Christ is all sufficient at that moment to save you. It is done. It is done once, and it is done forever, forever, okay? I've got a closing verse for you. Please call on Jesus today if you haven't. Before I give you my closing verse, just do that. Humbly come to him and say, I can't save myself, and I want you to save me. And he will do it, and it will be done. Our closing verse comes from 1 John chapter 4. The last one was from 1 John chapter 2. Little nuggets found in the book of 1 John. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Tell me that's not wonderful words from John. How many of us love one another as much as God loved us? I say I fail on that entirely every day with every person I meet. Next week, Leviticus 23, 33 through 44. This will be our last Feast of the Lord sermon. I'm so sorry they're done because they've been so exciting. But forever in the presence of God, free from the devil's shackles. It's entitled the Feasts of the Lord Tabernacles. That'll be our 42nd Leviticus sermon. And I'll tell you as I do each week that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin, I mean piles of it heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and he can purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Now, each week I try to give you a lesson to remember. I forgot it last week, but this week I'll give you a second one so that you have two. The first is no work. That should be the one thing you remember from this particular sermon. No work. It is all done by Christ. It is a gift of God. No work. Okay? But I have another lesson for you. For those in Christ, God can say to us, I'm okay. You're okay. All is A-OK. And as a point of commendation to our God... Thomas Harris sold 15 million copies of a book that is now all but forgotten because nobody remembered the name of that book. The Bible has been printed over 5 billion times, probably much over, and it is still being sold, downloaded, internet searched, and printed billions of times every single year. The most printed, read, studied, and loved book in all of human history is the word of God, go God, right? (laughs) Our poem today is called the day of atonement. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, these are the words he was then relaying. Also the 10th day of the seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. 
This is how it shall be spent. You shall afflict your souls according to this word and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And on that same day, you shall do no work for it is the day of atonement. Such is this day to make atonement for you before the Lord, your God, as to you, I now say for any person who is not afflicted in soul in this way on that same day, he shall be cut off from his people. So I say, and any person who does any work on that same day, pay heed to my word, that person I will destroy from among his people when my anger he has stirred. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. From this statute, you shall deviate Never. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall your souls afflict on the ninth day of the month at evening. From evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath according to this edict. O God, through Christ, we are restored to you again. Our sins are covered. We have atonement. The gift of the cross shouts out to all men. The enmity has ceased, and the wrath has been spent. Thank you for what our Lord has done. Thank you that we are no longer laden with guilt. Through Calvary's cross, our victory is won. There, when Christ's precious blood was spilt. Praises to you, endless praises, even forevermore. Praise to you from here on earth and even to heaven's eternal shore. Hallelujah and amen. And before I finish with a prayer... I will tell you that I had a pastor, some of you may have this in your mind right now, so I'm going to clear it up. I had a pastor one time preach that we should not say spilt blood of Christ because spilling is by accident and there was no accident in Christ's spilt blood. He shed his blood, he said. Well, I will tell you something, that when we shed our skin every day of the year, it is not on purpose, okay? Let's not get, what's the word, um, the semantics, into our theology where we destroy the message of Christ. Shed, spilt, they both have the same indication. I can intentionally spill, and I can unintentionally spill. And I can intentionally shed, and I can unintentionally shed. So if you heard that, I wanted to correct that. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come before you and to learn about the Day of Atonement once again. And how much exciting new information was in there today that was completely different than what we saw for three sermons a few weeks back. What a glorious word you have given us to just excite our senses, to fill our minds with wonder, and to lead us to the sure conclusion that we can rest in you and that we don't have to work in order to come back to you, that you yourself have done it by sending your son to die on a cross for us. Works are excluded. Faith is included. Thank you for the simplicity of the gospel message, which is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.